0: Thank you for tuning in to this sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find Him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. And as we begin today, I want to tell you about a Maryland tradition that I was introduced to with, my, um, with Rachel's family, who some of them are here today visiting from Maryland, and I thought I'd give them a little shout out. But also, um, there's this thing that they do around Christmas time, and it's, they make this thing called a hard rolled jelly cake. Okay, so let's put a picture of the hard rolled jelly cake up there. So um, we're gonna leave this up. This is an unbelievable, wonderful, but also a very specifically Maryland tradition, okay? So here's how you make a hard roll jelly cake. You take these, and and I'm not an expert, I've never done this before, so I'm probably not gonna describe it correctly, but you won't know whether I do or not because you've never heard of it until now, right? So you take these very thin layers of dough and you cook them like just enough, okay? So they're like a soft tortilla, but very, very thin. And you lay it down and you put a tiny layer of jelly and then you go back, and you bake more, tiny layers, and over and over and over again, like 20, 30, 40 times, you have all these layers of... It's only 13. It's, only, it's 13. Okay, excuse me. It's very specific. These deal people get really into uh, their hard roll jelly cake. And what you do is you wrap this thing up, and then you stick it in like an airtight tin for a month. And what it does is the jelly, because it's so thin, the jelly goes all the way through the cake. And then you slice these little tiny slices with some um, powdered sugar, and then you serve that at Christmas time. So we have an expert in hard roll jelly cakes in the house today, and that's Carol, all right? Carol knows how to do it, and because nobody from our family listens to my sermons, I can say it, okay? Um, She she does it the best. Like, she's figured it out, all right? It's like clockwork. And we all wait to get the hard roll jelly cake. Now, here's the thing. It's it's hard to make. Yeah, if you make the stuff too thick, the jelly won't go down if you put too much jelly in. And it's like there's all these different nuances to the hard-rolled jelly cake. It's got everything's gotta be balanced. It's very, very hard to do. Now, my friends, let me tell you, the book of Mark is a hard-rolled jelly cake. Okay? There is I know it's so funny. It's 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 layered. There's so many different layers. And I know that it's actually hard for Pastor Derek and I sometimes, when we're preaching, because when you start to look into this, it's like, oh my gosh, this connects with this. And this connects back to this. And you guys know I'm a Bible nerd, and so I like maps and studying Greek. And so, like, you get into these things, and it's just absolutely incredible. But today, specifically, we're going to have to look at the context of what we are te- sermon text today to figure out what is kind of the deeper layer of the hard-rolled jelly cake that is this section of the book of Mark. And and this kind of goes back to something I, I spoke on a few weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I said we have to approach the text with good assumptions, right? But But as I was reading this, I think this is another important point that we have to um, approach the text with an understanding that it is deeply layered, especially when we read the narrative. That, you know, a lot of times you'll have Jesus, like, heal someone and, like, rebuke someone and then teach something, and they just seem like random events that are scattered around. But when you start to look underneath the surface, you begin to see that the author is intentionally building a theme for us to follow, and that helps us interpret the text for us today. So let's look at the hard roll jelly cake That is Mark chapter 8. Okay, we're starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are relentlessly in pursuit of us, that you heal us in the ways that we ultimately need healing, and so I pray today that you would open up your word to us and help us understand what you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to talk about three things uh, this morning. We're going to talk about the true blindness, the trustworthy Savior, and the triumphant sight. The true blindness, the trustworthy Savior, and the triumphant sight. So let's look first at the true blindness. And I want us to do a little recap about what's going on in this section, in this this cake of Mark, okay? There's different sections that he's building a theme. And the theme that we're talking about here is spiritual blindness. So let's go to the next slide. Let me give you a little bit, just a recap of the past couple of, of kind of sections of teaching. First, Jesus heals a deaf man. And uh, then he physically provides bread with a miracle. He feeds the 4,000. Then the Pharisees challenge Jesus. They're questioning him. Then the disciples doubt his provision. And then Jesus heals a blind man in this passage. So this is kind of at the end of this section of teaching that Mark is layering. And if you look at the beginning and the end, it's a miraculous healing of perception right? So in the beginning, the guy can't hear, and he hears. And at the end, the guy can't see, and we saw that he sees. And in the middle, we're dealing with this idea of unbelief. Now, Jesus had just done this incredible um, feeding of the 4,000. The Pharisees challenge him, and then they jump on a boat. And this is what happens in the text prior to what we're looking at, one that Pastor Derek looked at last week. Says, Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they continued discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? We get a clue in what Jesus is speaking to his disciples that this whole passage, eyes do you not see, the thing that we're looking at today is Jesus heals a blind man. Ears do you not hear. The beginning of this section of Mark, Jesus heals someone who cannot hear. The true blindness that we are looking at throughout this whole section is unbelief. It's unbelief. Now, you see right before this, the, the Pharisees, they're intentionally testing Jesus. They're asking him for a sign. And it says there, I just, I read it last night again. and I was just laughing at it because it says, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. <laughs> he went, <"Ugh." laughs> And he said, you won't get a sign. And he, and he jumps on a boat and leaves. Like, that's what Jesus does. That's how Jesus handles the Pharisees. Because he had just fed 4,000 people. And that wasn't enough for them. They're intentionally testing Jesus, but then he gets on the boat and then the disciples are unintentionally completely missing the point. They're talking about bread, but Jesus says there's something deeper that I want you to be concerned about. I don't want you to go towards religious legalism like the Pharisees, the rule following. All of a sudden, this is how you get your righteousness. But then I also don't want you to just abandon the faith like Herod and just live like the other people around you. And then they And it says they they kept talking about bread. (laughs) That word began that's in the ESV is actually not there. They were talking about bread before, and they're talking about bread again. And it's like, do you not remember I just fed you? (laughs) You had seven baskets full of bread left over. It's not about the bread. It's not about the physical provision. I'm concerned about your hearts. I'm concerned about your unbelief. Now, you see, this whole story that we're looking at today with the healing of the blind man is actually focusing on spiritual blindness in this whole section of the book of Mark. And it's framed between these two miracles of the deaf man having his ears opened and the blind man having his eyes opened. It's Jesus breaking through unbelief and we are kind of at the pinnacle, miracle, that kind of wraps the section of Mark together. That is the true blindness. Next we see the trustworthy savior. And this is what Jesus does in Mark eight twenty-three. He took the blind man by the hand And led him out of the village. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So at this time, I want to invite Reese to come up here. And as I teach you this next section, Reese, I'd like for you to put this blindfold on. Do that. that. Okay. Can you see anything? No. All right. Hold out your hand. All right. There you go. I'm going to have you walk. All right. Now, here's the deal. Jesus only takes away, he only heals in private three times in the entire book of Mark, okay? He only heals in private three times. Two of them are in this section of scripture, okay? So he takes the deaf man at the beginning, and what he does is he says, hey, let's go away from the crowds, and then Jesus sticks his finger in the deaf man's ears, <laughs> It's kind of weird. And then he heals him, right? And then what he does here is at the end of this section of scripture, he takes the blind man. Remember, his friends brought him there and he takes the blind man and he takes him out of the village, away from the crowds to where it's just Jesus and it's just him. And then he heals him. So it's not a show. Most of the time, Jesus just heals people. Thank you, Reese. You can take the blindfold off. Now here, I got a question for you. Um, Do you trust me? There you go. Would you trust me, because of what we just did, to take you all the way down to the gym and back and not let you fall? Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. All right. Everybody give Reese a hand. I'm just glad you didn't stick your fingers in my ear. I did not stick my fingers in your ear. Uh, that would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> so everything that Jesus is doing when he's interacting with the blind man, from the second he sees him, is building Trust. Now remember, his his friends, the blind man's friends, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes as to why he had friends, his friends brought him to Jesus, and his friends were the ones that said, will you please touch him and heal him? The blind man never asked Jesus to heal him, does he? The blind man doesn't speak anything until halfway through the healing. Every single thing that happens when Jesus is interacting with the blind man is to build trust with him. And what is the first thing that Jesus does? He takes him by the hand and he leads him out of the village. Now, Jesus almost never does this. People come to Jesus, he goes, heal. And then he moves on to the next thing, right? But Jesus took time with him. And here's one of the things I think that he's doing here. Do you trust me to lead you? (laughs) Do you trust me to lead you farther than just outside of the village? Do you trust me to lead you into healing? My friends, I think, given some of the clues that we have in this text that maybe this gives us an indication of what the man truly needed. Like we say he's blind, but maybe there's something deeper underneath the blindness of what, what he needed. Maybe he struggled to trust. And again, remember, he's not the one that came to Jesus. His friends brought him. He's, he could speak. He didn't ask Jesus for anything. It was his friends were the ones that said, please touch him, please heal him. He doesn't even have a voice until the middle of the healing. Every single thing that Jesus does to interact with this man is done to build trust with him. Now, let's move on. Mark 8, 23, the second half of that. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. Now, most people ask when they get to this text, why in the world did Jesus spit? That's weird. (laughs) Was it like some magical special spit that he like conjured up and hocked a loogie and healed this guy's eyes, right? No, no. Um, And then a lot of people ask too, why did it take two times? Was there some like deeper meaning behind this? Those are questions, but I actually think there's a more interesting question than this. I think the more interesting question is, what does it mean that Jesus didn't stop until this man was healed? What does it mean that Jesus did not stop until this man was, was healed? I think that Jesus' persistence is part of his building of the trust between him and this man. Now, um, we know that this man was not born blind. How do we know that? Because look at what it says in the text. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Do you catch it? The guy had seen trees now, whether it was a traumatic experience or whether it was a degenerative thing, the guy wasn't blind from birth. And given the fact that he had friends, now remember, in that context, if you had some sort of debilitating illness, if you were lame, if you were blind, you typically wouldn't have friends. You'd typically be a beggar, right? And we see this a lot with people coming to Jesus that they had nothing. They had no friends. They were alone and abandoned. This guy's not. This guy's had, got friends. So, maybe if you'll give me a little creative license, okay, this is in this is, uh, I'm kind of inferring this from the text, not deducing it, but I think that maybe what happened with this guy is what would happen to you or me if we lost our eyesight. And maybe we don't always trust God when bad things happen to us. Maybe we struggle to trust God. But this man had friends that brought him to Jesus and spoke on his behalf and we see here again more clues everything that Jesus is doing from the moment he meets this man is meant to build trust between them to lead him to healing to lead him to intimacy the physical touch of Jesus was alluding actually to this Jewish healing and purification customs Yep. Yep. I mean, I know the sermon is bad, but I didn't know it was that bad, guys. Goodness gracious. (laughs) My friends, I think what this man ultimately needed was to establish trust. I think that's actually this deep thing going on inside of him, that he needed to trust God, and he was struggling. And maybe it was because of his blindness that he was struggling to trust him. So we see that Jesus' persistence establishes trust. Not only that, we see Jesus... His persistence wasn't satisfied until the man was fully and truly healed. And you see, I don't think he was just going to heal his physical blindness. I think he was looking to heal his spiritual blindness too. Because remember, this whole text, this whole passage is talking about the spiritual blindness of everybody around Jesus. And I think it's kind of interesting, Jesus' persistence. What does Jesus' persistence say about the Pharisees and what Jesus is going to do? What does Jesus' persistence say about the disciples who, in just the passage before, have no clue? They're not understanding what's going on at all. What does Jesus' persistence say about what he's going to do? And I think one of the things it says is that he is relentless for his people. And actually, solving the physical problems of our lives is only a small portion of what Jesus is doing in our difficult circumstances. Like so often when we're struggling with a health issue, a medical issue, a financial issue. We pray for God to solve the issue, the physical thing in front of us. And so often God is doing like 10,000 things underneath the surface to build our trust in his sovereignty, to build our trust in his love. And he's actually using the kind of surface level circumstances that we're going through to accomplish a deeper healing in our lives. And I think there's something to be said about the long, drawn-out process of what Jesus did here with this man. Because he didn't have to take him out of the village, did he? He didn't have to lead him by the hand. He could have just healed him right there. He didn't have to do the spit in the eyes and the two things, but he did. Why? I think because this guy needed something more than just physical healing. You see, Jesus meets our truest needs as a trustworthy Savior. And not only that, we have to look at the triumphant Sight. Mark 8 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now again, remember, halfway through the story, he's partially healed. He's seeing shapes like trees, and then Jesus goes again. And they're alone here. Remember, they're they're not around other people. He leads them out of the village, he leads them away from the crowds, and he's not stopping until he fully heals this man. And we see throughout this whole passage of Mark, the whole hard roll jelly cake of Mark, okay, we see that over and over again, Jesus is triumphing over unbelief. He's triumphing over people's questions. He's triumphing over people's doubts, that consistently he is building trust and proving himself and healing, not just the physical, but the emotional and the spiritual blindness, which has preceded this. So, I think when I look at us and how we can apply this, I think that we see that there is a darkness inside of us, unfortunately, a spiritual blindness that we're born with. And we didn't originally have this. In the Garden of Eden, it says that we saw God face to face. We walked with him in the cool of the day. We spoke to him as a man talks with his friend, right? This is how we originally were created to be and live, was with intimacy and full trust in God. And yet, what we see in the garden is a breakdown of that trust. What we see is a spiritual blindness descend. And I think that this text points us to two things. We need to see something, and we need to believe something. We need to see our need in his grace. That's the first thing that we need. We need to see our need. See, the blind man needed Jesus. But remember, he didn't come to Jesus. His friends brought him. He didn't even ask Jesus for healing. His friends asked him for healing. But I think on that long walk outside of the village, I think that highlighted his blindness in a way that healing him just in the moment would not have had. Like, I think Jesus truly cared for this man. I think he truly wanted to build an intimacy and a trust between them by saying, come, let me grab your hand. Let's walk outside together. And my friends, I think you and I need to see our need. This is what repentance is. This is the beginning of repentance. It's saying that I don't have it together is saying that I don't know enough, that I'm not good enough, and I never will be. Like this is, the, this is the base level understanding of the Christian faith is that we cannot do it ourselves. And so we need to see our deep need. And I think like the blind man walking and being led by Jesus saw. But not only that, we need to see God's persistent and trustworthy grace. We need to see God's grace. See, Jesus didn't give up. He worked in and he worked through the man's unbelief to lead him to healing. And guess what? Just like he would eventually do with the disciples who followed him around for three years. And they were a bunch of knuckleheads. They had no clue what was going on, all right? They had no clue what Jesus was doing. They were confused the whole time. And yet Jesus is using their unbelief and confusion, and he's loving them in the midst of this. And then after he resurrects, he founds the church on these 12 people that then die for this truth and die for this reality and establish the church that we now stand in today. And then we look at the Jewish leaders on the day of Pentecost. We see many Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. We see Jesus overcoming unbelief. So we need to see something. We need to see our need in his grace. But not that. We also need to believe something. We need to believe God's work of salvation is both comprehensive and it involves our trust and heart and intimacy. My friends, God loves you personally. Just like you love this blind man, personally. God loves you personally we just finished reading through the book of Exodus. Um, Actually, uh, yesterday was our final day in Exodus as a church in our church-wide reading plan. And um, as we were looking, uh, it was was pretty unbelievable because there's this moment where Moses is interacting with God. And God says, hey, I'm not going to go up with you. You guys can leave the mountain, but I'm not going to go with you. My presence won't go with you. And Moses said, no, I won't leave here unless your presence comes with me. Please don't let us leave. I'll die before I keep going forward without your presence. And Moses says this wonderful phrase. He says, and I know your name. I know your name. And then just a few verses later, God says, I will go up with you and I know you by name. And it's this beautiful, intimate moment. You think, think about the thousands of Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. Think about the thousands of people, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that they're going to do, these macro problems. How do you organize people? How do you feed people? How do you how do you help them get enough water to drink? And yet, this beautiful moment between God and Moses, where they say to each other, I know you by name. My friends, this is God for us, it's God for you. He cares about you. You are just not a notch on his belt of souls, right? It's not just like you come to faith in him, you pray a prayer, and it's like, okay, good. You're you're written, you're going to heaven. He's got a mansion reserved for you. Move on, next one, right? Like, God is infinite. And because he is infinite, he has infinite capacity to care about you personally and you personally and you personally and you personally. He cares about all of us personally and intimately. And you see, this is what that means, I think is that God will orchestrate a redemptive plan for your whole life that will uniquely meet you in your brokenness, that will uniquely meet you in your questions and your unbelief, to uniquely save you and redeem every part of you over a lifetime of sorrow and celebration, tears and triumphs. This is God for you and me. He's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for your life to redeem every part of you. And when you become a Christian, that's just the beginning of what he's doing in your life. That's just the beginning of of who he's uncovering. He's uncovering himself to you because we're meant to walk with him. We're meant to have intimacy with him. And this painful, difficult life with its struggles and celebrations, my friends, it's all done and orchestrated as a plan of redemption to redeem every part of our hearts underneath the gospel of grace until one day we will be triumphant and brilliant until one day we will like enter into eternity and God already sees us for who we will be one day in eternity. He's not going to stop. He's going to be relentless towards you. And if you are running from him, if you are rebelling against him, he's not going to stop pursuing you. He's not going to stop loving you. He's not going to stop coming after you. He is absolutely relentless for you. So, um, as I mentioned, I'm a nerd. I like looking at Bible maps and Greek commentaries and I was looking at this Greek commentary about this, and, uh, I, and, and it was about the phrase, he saw everything clearly. It says he saw everything clearly. And the commentator said that that terminology leaves no room for uncertainty over the completeness of his cure, because like, he was completely clear of sight. But that word clearly is something I started to dive into. And The word means shining brightly from a distance. It's like this incredibly bright light that you can see clearly from a distance. Or this idea of a radiant light, or another word is resplendent. I absolutely love this word. And and if you don't know what the word means, it, it means richly colorful or brilliant in a way that is attractive and beautiful. Resplendent. He says, I see everything resplendently. That's what he sees. Now, of course, what's the first thing I think of when I think of resplendent, which is richly colorful and brilliant in a way that is attractive and beautiful? Reese, show them what I think about. First one, first picture. I think of Death Valley. Obviously, that makes no sense, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about Death Valley and resplendence. Death, Death Valley is in eastern California. It's the northern Mojave Desert. Again, this is the nerd in me, okay? So there's, some, there's some nerd stuff coming out. It's got a bunch of salt basins, and it's super dry, Because it's on the opposite end of multiple mountain ranges, which stop the clouds. So all the clouds are coming off the Pacific Ocean, right? The breeze coming off the Pacific Ocean, and it's traveling east. And then there's these big mountain ranges that stop the air, stop the clouds, stop the rain, stop the water. And on the other side is Death Valley, all right? Which is not resplendent, all right? I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, So it has the highest atmospheric temperature ever recorded on Earth's surface, which was 134 degrees. Okay. So, gross. All right. Super gross. Not only that, but it has the highest ground surface temperature ever recorded in the, in earth's history at 201 degrees. The literally the ground was 201 degrees in Death Valley. No, thank you. All right. And I think Tennessee summers are hot. I hate Tennessee summers. Um, thank you. I love, I love, I love Tennessee, but I hate this place in the summer. All right. No, thank you. All right. So here's the deal. Occasionally, once every 10 to 20 years, this is what Death Valley turns into. Pop up the next picture. It's called a super bloom. And it's extremely rare phenomenon where the desert has an explosion of blooming wildflowers. But here's the deal. Again, my nerd brain's going to come out here. The conditions have to be perfect. Now, in that Death Valley picture we saw a second ago, there's all these wildflower seeds deep underneath the salt basins. They're lying dormant for 10, 15, 20 years, decades, okay? And there's a very specific series of events that have to happen that only happen once every 10 or 15 years. First, there has to be, it has to be dry enough and hot enough to kill all the invasive weeds and all the invasive grasses. So it's gotta be super, super hot in the summer to the, and no rain to the point where it kills off all of like the wild grasses and all the things that could choke out all these wildflowers when they're coming up, okay? So it has to be really dry and really hot to kill everything. Then there has to become enough rain in the fall to break through that clay that you looked at before. So it's got to be multiple times where it's got to have this heavy, heavy rain in the fall so that all that moisture gets down to those seeds that are lying dormant underneath the surface. Then it's got to have enough cloud cover in the winter to gradually heat up so that the water does not evaporate because the water could just evaporate and go. So it's got to actually like slowly heat up over a couple of months and there's got to be a lot of cloud cover. So not, not anything, uh, not all the, the water evaporates. And then as these little tiny seeds are germinated and they're coming up out of the surface, there needs to not be a lot of wind because the wind can just take the little tiny seedlings and the little tiny, like, like little bits of things that are busting up and just blow them away. So if everything is right and all these different things build, this super bloom happens in the desert, in Death Valley. That's what happens. And my friends, I believe underneath the surface of our hearts, there's something there. That God knows exactly what is needed for you and I to bloom, to be resplendent, to come alive in this desert of life. And for some of us, it's a myriad of different things that have to happen over a number of years for us to truly blossom and bloom again. And here's the deal. When you truly lay down pride, when you lay down rebellion, when you submit to the process of Jesus leading you, he always leads you into life bursting with color and clarity. And it's in the desert, right? So it doesn't mean that we're out of the desert. We're still in the desert. We're still in this life. But within this life, we can blossom. Within this life, we can super bloom. (laughs) My friends, this is the invitation of the gospel. When we see our deep need and how God, through Jesus, meets our deep need with his unrelenting grace. And all of this is done in view of who we will be one day in glory. Jonathan Edwards wrote this wonderful, wonderful um, sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. And this is what he says here. He says, every saint in heaven is as a flower in that garden of God. And holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor that they all send forth. And with which they fill the bowers of that paradise above. Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note. And all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. My friends, Jesus sees us as to who we will be one day, who we are even in this life. Even when we can have these glimpses of a super bloom in the desert, who we are is but a tiny seed. <clears throat> and when you die, it's like maybe there's like an inch or two of who you are breaks the surface. And God sees us what we're going to look like thousands of years into eternity as we grow in the knowledge of Him, as we grow in reflecting His glory. He sees us for who we will be resplendent, beautiful singing a wonderful song of heaven to God and to one another. And that's what he invites us into. That's what he's talking about here is to break the spiritual blindness, (laughs) to submit to him in repentance and faith and to see how he will lead us and guide us into being absolutely, wonderfully resplendent. My friends, all of this is done because of the work of Jesus on the cross.